0: Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Uh, I'm your host, uh, John Chidgy, and today I'm joined by Radek Piotrushewski. Sorry.
1: Plus, production fixes everything. It does. Don't worry.
0: It does. So, how are you doing, Radek?
1: I'm doing really good. How are you?
0: Very good, very good. Uh, th- thanks for coming on the show uh, to talk about uh, this is um another episode about Elon Musk and his ventures, uh, but today we're going to talk about specifically about SpaceX. So so yes, now you've been following um you've been following Elon Musk for uh, and SpaceX for quite a while now, yes.
1: Yeah, and I'm quite a <laughs> a rocketry nerd, so I'm very happy that that you've invited me over.
0: Yeah, no problem. I uh, No, I appreciate your time. And uh, I suppose, just to get started, before we do talk about SpaceX, um, just to talk uh, like start with a little bit of the basics about rockets. And I mean, I think everyone knows what a rocket is, but the funny thing I found is that it's actually based on an Italian word, uh, which is uh, rochetta. Uh, and loosely translated, it means a bobbin or a small spindle. And I guess that's probably, it's thought to have been named that way because of just the shape of what a rocket just tends to look like. But anyway, so I thought that was a bit strange, but anyhow... Um, so they originally they developed in the 13th century in China and uh, they were all solid fuel rockets uh, based on gunpowder uh, Of course that you know the Chinese invented gunpowder and fireworks and, and obviously that was when they were they were first used used in uh, fireworks and are nice and very pretty but um, eventually they were you know developed and adapted into incendiary weapons which is probably not quite so fun <clears throat> anyway uh, over the next several decades. So I'm not really all that interested in the history of weapons because that's like really tedious. So I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to talk about weapons and stuff. So rockets and and rockets, not in terms of weapons. Um, so yes. Uh, anyway, so the um, rockets also have been used to sort of power stuff that stays in the ground. So earthbound um, equipment, shall we say? And again, I'm really not like rocket-powered cars or rocket-powered sleds. Not really interested in that either because that's like well. It doesn't take you very far. I want rockets that actually take me off of the planet because that's cool. Um, what do you reckon? Is that fair? It's got the coolness factor yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah
1: that's, that, that's why you, you build a rocket to it's,
0: get into space. Exa- I mean, what exactly right. I mean, I don't want a rocket-powered slate. I, rocket, I want a rocket that take, gets me out into space. Thank you.
1: Well, um, unless you're building one yourself, which I recommend doing. It's a, it's a fun project, then, you know, you're doing it just for fun.
0: So, you build a rocket slate. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Um. <laughs> but you've process, always ah, you want your to always building a rocket sled. It it sounds like it's the sort of project that makes me think of the Darwin Awards, like uh, the guy that strapped a jet engine to his car or a rocket. <laughs> so, that's like I don't even know if that's true. But
1: yeah. well, my, my, my rocket is, is is not so big to uh, to kill me. But uh, yeah, it, it's fun. Wow. Then okay. It wow. It's
0: More fun. Okay. Fair enough then. Um, very good. All right. Well, let's we'll just, just keep, <laughs> keep moving. All right, cool. So, it was it was Robert Goddard, actually, in 1920, who proposed the rocket technology refinements that would allow higher altitude rocketry. And it was in 1923, Herman Oberth published the Rocket Interplanetary Space. And subsequently, um, Goddard adapted the nozzle of the rocket to allow combustion uh, of liquid fueled rockets. And that improved the thrust by a factor of 30 times. And that sort of was the, the stepping stone um, for modern rocketry. And so, more specifically about the space rockets, because that's obviously most relevant to SpaceX. Uh, Broadly speaking, a couple of basics before we talk about SpaceX. So, the kinds of rockets, I like to think of rockets as terms of the fuel uh, as being the primary differentiator. So, you've got solid or liquid fuel. And um, solid fuel is uh, basically just a chemical reaction that creates a hot gas exhausting through a nozzle. That creates your thrust and pushes a rocket in the other direction, hopefully upwards I mean, really, hopefully upwards. Anyway, um, <laughs> once it's lit, most solid rocket fuels, you really can't shut them off. Once you, no. yeah, it's one of those, we didn't start the fire things. Anyway, so once it's burning, it's burning. Um, but it's much simpler in in a lot of ways. So, and you get a very good energy density for it because your solid fuels typically have better energy density. But um, anyway, liquid. So, because liquid is, liquid can be pumped, and um and such uh then the fuel can be pumped into a combustion chamber and lit the same thing hot gases go through an exhaust nozzle does much the same thing as solid fuel but the difference is because you can pump a liquid you can also control its flow unlike a solid fuel so you could turn it on and off if you want to uh making it more complicated but you can get better thrust control out of it so liquid is good um anyway beyond those differences as i said it's sort of like the energy density of the fuel how you manage your thrust and attitude control the rocket and so on which we'll talk a bit about how SpaceX have dealt with that, which is really fascinating. So, uh, anyway, the biggest cost to launching into space is the fact that I think up until recently, um, the vast majority of the space hardware was sort of manufactured to order, used once, and then discarded, thrown away, or burnt up on re-entry, and, and so on, which is horribly wasteful. And for the longest time, I kind of wondered about why that was. And <laughs> I think it's... And,
1: and so the Elon
0: Yeah, no kidding. Elon Musk is like, this is just crazy, and I was like, yeah, this is crazy. Anyway, so uh, obviously, it centers around two issues. Well, I think it centers around two issues. First of all, is the uh, the safe recovery of that used hardware can be problematic. The world, the majority of the world, is water. So if this stuff does in fact come back down to earth, it's going to land in the water, and um, probably, uh, hopefully, anyway, at least at least it won't fall on anyone's head if it's. Well, I guess there's a lot, if there's a lot more cruise ships, I have to wonder if anything from space has ever landed on a cruise ship. Pro- probably not. But no, statistically, no. if we keep doing it, then anyway. Um, I,
1: I, I think something re-entering from space landed and killed a cow or something once in oh, history. That's terrible. And and that's pretty much it. And th- th- there's often um, uh, these t- titanium kind of balls um, you know holding helium and whatnot on spacecraft that often land um, somewhere on the planet uh, but usually just in the middle of, of nowhere and everything else yep. just just burns up
0: yeah that's it so that's the other thing is obviously if you do if you have a parachute to slow it down so it doesn't burn up on re-entry then when it does land of course um, you know if it let, let's say it lands in in the water it doesn't hurt, in all them it doesn't hurt anyone or kill any cows which is good um, but yeah you know, <laughs> The, 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 the weight and the strength of that material um, versus its usability, because, I mean, if that if that was a, a rocket and the it, it would land badly at a high speed or at a bad angle, then you could damage it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, then you have going to have trouble reusing it. So you want to make it stronger to withstand the impact. That makes it heavier. So it's, it's all these interesting trade-offs with materials. So generally, the lighter you make them, the less strong they will be, uh, but then they'll be able to withstand a single launch and then return so that you could then reuse them. So, But the lighter you make them, the less able they are to handle multiple launches. So, I guess the thing is that in a, a lot's happened in recent decades with material science, and basically that equation's changed a bit. So, yeah, if you spend a little bit more money up front on more expensive materials and the way you design it, uh, you should be able to reuse them quite a number of times rather than just saying, oh, well, it's it's going to get all bent out of shape or it's going to get damaged or distorted during launch and, and recovery. So, you know, we just won't bother trying. But nowadays, it's a, it's. I think the equation's changed. And, and I know that's a bit of a simplification, right? There's always certain components you can't reuse, like things like uh, certain seals. You know, if you've got like a rubber seal or mm-hmm. whatever else, it's good for one launch. Okay, fine. So, you have to refit that. But you know, generally speaking, you can reuse a lot more. But...
1: Yeah. yeah. The, the, the main problem is that... Um... You can't really fit a lot of extra hardware, like in a car you have something like five percent of its mass will be fuel in a in a jet airliner it's going to be fifty percent but but in a rocket is going to be ninety five percent or ninety seven percent fuel right and and it just has to do with how how strongly the earth pulls on everything like you 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 can't really put a lot of stuff because the more uh, hardware you have and the more fuel you have, the more fuel you need to lift that and the more fuel to lift that, right? And so yep. it's kind of, it's really hard. So so it's it's not just a matter of investing upfront, but you really needed uh, uh, computer-aided design and modern um, materials to be able to pull it off.
0: Yeah, ab- exactly. Absolutely right. And it's the, the, the thing I find... Um, Interesting, because as you say, ninety ninety five percent of the of the the mass of the rocket is the fuel, and that's an exponential problem because the more fuel you add, you have to lift that exactly. weight, so you need to add more fuel to lift that fuel, which then you need to add more fuel to lift that fuel. It's, it's a fascinating little problem.
1: Yeah, it's described by the the Tchaikovsky rocket equation, and if you it's a simple thing, but if you play with the numbers, it's like you you quickly realize why this is so hard and why. Um, orbital rockets launching from Earth are staged, which is you have the massive first stage and then the second stage and sometimes the third stage, uh, because otherwise it just, the math does not allow it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up, so thank you. Um, it's um, just on the recovery bit, a bit for a second as well. I, I think also um, one of the problems with recovering stuff from the ocean is that you'll get fouling um, cause there's lots of other stuff in the ocean other than just water and even water on, you know, rocket parts is probably not good. And you've got to clean that all off and, and make that all nice. And, uh, you, plus you got to get out and find it. So you have to get in, a, get in a boat and salvage it. And <sighs> anyway, so it's, it's a reusing in that fashion is sort of like a, it's a difficult problem and I feel like they almost salvage things. In the past, the way they salvaged things, just putting a parachute on it and recovering it later was was really not the best way of doing it. And so if you're going to really re- re- reuse your hardware properly, you should need, hey, you want a nice, soft, gentle landing or as soft as possible. And you really want to do that without it getting wet in the process. So landing on solid ground. And um, if you want to reduce your recovery costs even more, it'd be even nicer if you could return to the same place that you took off. So you don't have to drive anywhere to pick it up. Um... Which would be good, or go anywhere in a boat. Uh, and, and the reason that I just wanted to, to sort of harp on a little bit about the whole recovery piece is that that's crucial to what SpaceX is trying to achieve. So, um, and I guess uh, the other thing, if you want to reduce your costs further, I suppose you should probably construct your hardware or assemble it right next to where you're going to launch it. That's not always practical, but you know, it's what you should do. And um, finally, um, you want to launch from a point on the planet. Where the surface velocity is going to be the greatest, uh, such that when the rocket's off the ground, it's already travelling faster and can reach its escape velocity a lot more quickly. And that means obviously you can get away with a smaller rocket with less fuel for the same size of payload, which is your ultimate goal. um, Which means you should be launching as close to the equator as possible. Because that's one of those funny things people don't don't. I think people maybe they intuitively intuitively realise it about the equator, but maybe they maybe haven't thought about it. But when you look at the Earth, first of all, you know, it's not a perfect sphere and we have got a bulge around the equator. And that's just because uh, the fact that as the, the Earth is spinning, um, if you were to draw a dot on it uh, on the equator and draw a dot, um, you know, a few hundred meters out from one of the, the poles and look at how fast each of those points is spinning when you spin the globe around, you know, the closer you go to the pole, the slower you're, you're moving on the surface, if you're standing right on the pole, technically, you're just sort of like turning around <laughs> as opposed to if you're on the equator. So, if you launch something from the pole, um, you don't get any assistance at all from the rotation of the Earth. But if you do it from the equator, you do. And you know, But unfortunately, yeah, that, yeah.
1: That's also the reason why uh, pretty much all orbital rockets are launched to the east and not to the west to, to take advantage of, of Earth's uh, rotation the the only uh, the only what's the word the only ex- exception I can think of is Israel which can only launch to the west but then you have to make up for the the, the Earth's rotational speed
0: yeah exactly right so it's like it's like getting a difference between getting a little bit of an extra assistance from the Earth's natural rotation or not you can fight against it just need more fuel and you know and no one wants more fuel. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's a good point. Actually, the whole east east west thing. Uh, so, I guess these are some of the reasons why. And actually, some of the other things about the equator—it's interesting as well—is that um, uh, at the at the equator, you technically you'll have less, slightly less gravity. And the funny thing with that mm. is that that actually means you end up with slightly more atmosphere. So it's kind of a bit weird. But never mind. Because um, the atmosphere is actually denser at the po- <laughs> it's, it's 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 denser at the poles. And uh, anyway, never mind bottom line is it's more about the rotation the rest isn't relatively negligible but the problem with that is that it's the problem with that is that the equator the vast majority of the equator is water and uh the the land that you can get to is either difficult to transport stuff to and from so there's you know like going through the top of um uh north north africa and parts of um south south america i think in that the Oh, dear. I, I don't have a globe in front of me. Uh, but a lot of those areas are either desert or rainforest and not very large. So, so getting a rocket to those launch locations is incredibly difficult, if not impossible. So, t- countries tend to launch from the southernmost point, if, if in the northern hemisphere, the southernmost point of the country that they can get away with, which is one of the reasons why you've got Vandenberg and you've got um, the Kennedy Space Center. Um, they're both re- as relatively far south as in the US that you can get. And um, they, of course, you. I think you'd get close to the equator if you launched from Hawaii, but I think it's a long way to ship a rocket just to launch it. So, they probably figured it's not worth the money. Um, but anyway.
1: Um, it, it actually wouldn't be too much uh, to the south if you launched from Hawaii. It, it's still, hmm. I would say, like 20 degrees inclination.
0: Yeah, it's probably not. It's probably not worth the trouble, and it's it's a long way to take a ship. Uh, to, sorry, to take a, a rocket on a ship it, just to get a little bit of extra boost. You're far better off just launching. And this is why Kennedy Space Center is good enough, right? So it's
1: yeah. Well, Euro, Europeans still do it. Um, I guess. I mean, I've never read heard about it, but I guess they have to transport the ship over the rockets on a ship over the Atlantic to the the French Guiana. Yeah, that's
0: just true. It's a long way. It is a long but way.
1: But yeah. in Europe, we don't really have any spot to 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 launch it would be like too far up north
0: yeah that's true actually i had i sort of wondered if they'd actually launched many from um the mediterranean um but they don't do that no no interesting uh every now and then they talk about having a spaceport in northern queensland um in my home state in australia but the problem with that is that um well, the economics and the, the travel, transportation costs and everything, and it never really took off. <laughs> Actually, that's funny. It never took <laughs> off. Anyway, <clears throat> never mind. All right, cool. So um, so that's a little bit about why you want to launch from as close to the equator as you can. And uh, obviously, it's a lot easier to move a, a rocket around on land than it is on a ship. But then again, um, you know that has other advantages. So maybe a ship's not such a bad idea. And we'll have talk about that, about what SpaceX did about that in a, in a little bit. Um, anyway... So there's an, another little thing just to quickly talk about as well that I think people may again have heard or know, but just to make it um, absolutely clear is there's a big difference in terms of payloads and payload delivery uh, in terms of the destination you're trying to deliver it to. So the rockets trying to get into space, well, it's not space isn't just space. Um, there's different kinds of space, <laughs> um, and the two that are the most talked about are low Earth orbit. Uh, which is a 90 minute or thereabouts Earth orbit. and that has sorts of all sorts of other advantages because you can get to low Earth orbit. and um, with a little bit of thrust correction, you can stay up there for quite a while with not a heck of a lot of propellant. And so a lot of things like the International Space Station and uh, a lot of the, so like the Iridium satellites, the GPS satellites are all in low Earth orbit. And so they're whizzing around the earth once every 90 minutes, uh, which is uh, which is kind of cool. And I, uh,
1: hmm. actually, GPS is in uh, middle Earth orbit, which oh, is much further out, but not as far as as uh, as geostationary orbit.
0: Okay, my mistake. Thank you. Quite. Yep. I think yes. Thank you for that. Quite right. I um, I'm just trying to think about other things that are in low Earth orbits. Um, I know. Iridium is. Um,
1: yeah, th- th- there's a lot of um, imaging satellites. Yeah. Spy satellites. <laughs> mostly.
0: But we don't know they're there. We we don't. We, we're pretty sure that we we don't know that they're there or that they're not there. <laughs> but they probably are. Um, but then, of course, you, the the thing about um, geostationary orbit was the other one that typically is quoted. As I say how long, how much does it take to get a payload to geostationary? And geostationary is that magical distance where you're basically travelling at the same rotational rate and falling at the same rate that you you don't actually move. You're stationary above the Earth as it spins, and that's the magic spot where people put like cable tv satellites and because they're always over an area and they never move sort of thing
1: yeah that's actually a funny thing about orbital mechanics there are a few of these interesting orbits which have these magical properties like geostationary from the perspective of earth you'll have something that's on one point at the sky but when you think about it that's actually that's that's kind of amazing right but it's 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 just because you you are so high up that you have the same rotational speed and you are right above the equator. So you also need to have the zero degree inclination. Uh, But you also have orbits like L1, L3 which are at the spots between Earth and the Sun that uh, your satellite Earth and the Sun are always in the same line. So you always see the Sun or Earth from kind of the, the same perspective. Uh, and and that that's all that's also like a magical um, spot. And uh, there's one satellite that's called Disco- Discover, kind of abbreviated, mm-hmm. which literally takes a picture of Earth from that spot every hour and posts it on Twitter, which is incredible.
0: That's that is kind of cool. I should subscribe to that actually. That sounds cool. <laughs> so you see the Earth spinning uh, um, as the day passes, yeah. and its perspective is always exactly the same. That's, That's cool. Right. That's very cool. Why once an hour? I want once every minute. Once every thirty seconds. If you're <laughs> Come on. We have the technology. All right. Cool. That's um. Yeah. So bottom line is that um, it's important to understand the differences between that because obviously geostationary. Well, maybe not obviously, but geostationary is is far, much further out. Um, and so it takes a lot more energy to get a payload from low Earth orbit to geostationary. So. Uh, and then and also that's obviously also very different from going to somewhere like the moon which is a lot further out than that and you know obviously different from going to somewhere like Mars which is you know even further out so there's quite a there's quite a big difference as to how much energy you need and that that makes a big difference so um and uh there's also just again to reiterate not interested in talking about rockets that never intend to reach orbit but there these are things right so they're uh, you deliver passengers between two points on the Earth's surface very, very quickly on a rocket, but then again, traditionally, that hasn't been what they were used for. They were used to deliver other things that were perhaps less friendly, things like bombs and things, and so intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs for short, Um not interested in that because that's just not nice. Not that's and, until start people until people start actually traveling that way, like on the Concorde. Uh, I'm not going to find that interesting if we're delivering weapons, and I'm not interested in weapons. So no.
1: The the only part that's interesting about it is how much of uh, rocketry for exploration comes from ICBMs, like the the Soyuz True. rocket, which still like at the moment is the only operational rocket capable of uh, lifting people into orbit. It derives from the world's first ICBM from six years ago. It's pretty amazing. And uh, mm. the Delta family of rockets and the Atlas family of, of rockets are also, you know, long, you know, very far derivatives from ICBMs with those same names.
0: Yeah, that's true. I suppose it's one of those one of those things where military uh, knowledge was actually put towards something useful and constructive for a change, which was good. Uh, but yes, I. Yeah. So, bottom line, uh, that's the basics about um, some of the stuff that is relevant to what SpaceX is trying to do. There's a heck of a lot more, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's rocket science, obviously. Uh, so, there's quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a lot to it. Um, but those are the basics, at least, about rockets and the cost drivers, uh, for example, and launch sites and and so on, and what you need to be thinking about in terms of reducing that cost. So now we can finally talk about Elon Musk and what he's actually trying to do to attack this uh, rather interesting problem. And I guess it starts with a little bit of history about space programs. And it's the sort of thing that uh, between Russia and the United States for the longest time, from the 50s onwards, we're in a space race. And they were trying to, you know, so... Sputnik was the first satellite that went up into um, into orbit, and then it was a race to get the first uh, people up in orbit, and then it was the first space station in orbit. Then it was first person to the moon. After which it all just kind of like dissipated, and there's there were a handful of countries in the world that had space launch capability. It was very very expensive, and like I said previously it was all based on use it once, burn it up. There's some stuff that was kind of reused, but it was really more of a token gesture, and it wasn't a massive cost saving, and. The uh, They had the Space Shuttle program for a while as an attempt to be reusable, but the Space Shuttle wasn't really all that reusable. There was still a lot of it, like the tiles that need to be redone after every launch, and it was quite expensive and didn't deliver on the promise. So, um, so SpaceX and Elon Musk sort of came into this point because um, Elon Musk always wanted to... Um, he had this concept of a Mars Oasis, which was like a, a greenhouse delivered to Mars, you know, and... Uh, he, he went around the world looking for uh, low-cost technology to try and get, uh, to make that happen. And I think he got a little bit frustrated <laughs> because he apparently, so the story goes, he was traveling around the world and he visited Russia as well, hoping to get low-cost uh, launch capability for his little, his dream. And um, he came back quite disappointed and it was more or less after that, apparently, so the story goes, that in, in 2002 um, he was able to join up with um, Tom Mueller. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, basically he's been a, a quite a quite a um, a well-known rocket engineer, and um, in 2002 that was when they sort of founded SpaceX. And after about three years, they had about 150 employees, and then in 2013, it jumped to over 1,000, and now there are over 5,000 employees today. So, they've grown significantly in recent years. And their goal was to reduce the cost of launching things, whatever they may be, into space by a factor of 10 over our current conventional space launch technology. And the fundamental goal to achieve it was to develop a as fully a reusable rocket as possible. It could launch and return to its own launch pad once the payload had been delivered. So that was their goal. And everything that they're doing has been focused on that as their end goal to reduce that cost. Because if you could do that, then you could completely revolutionize. how. Because right now, sending something to space is incredibly expensive. And so satellites cost a fortune when you put them up there they'll build and test satellites for years and the engineering effort that goes into them is, is is huge so there's this massive program and of course if the rocket fails on launch or on, on on as it's trying to ascend you know then you could lose millions and millions and millions of dollars that, that poor little satellite uh, just got burnt up and it's like oh well that's alright we'll just put on the next rocket oh what's that you need another three or four years to build another one so it's it slows down technological innovation and that's a and that's just holds us back basically so yeah
1: yeah the, the the big grand goal of Elon Musk is he really wants to put people on Mars and you know when he when he talks about it, especially in the past when he talked about it people would not take him very seriously because it's just so outlandish to talk about <laughs> colonizing Mars when we barely have six people orbiting our planet at the moment and you know, 50 years later, we we can't get back to the moon, but he's pretty serious about it. And he saw that the only way to do it is to really drastically, um, you know, eventually by orders of magnitude, reduce the cost of access to space. And, you know, at the beginning, it's satellites, and it's still satellites and servicing ISS. But over time with reusability, that's the only way we we're ever going to get to this point where it will be feasible to not just put, you know, two people on Mars, but actually put a lot of people on Mars.
0: Yeah, that was that seems to have been his goal from the very beginning. And, you know, it's interesting um, about the whole why Mars thing. And I know that mm. I guess the, the problem is Mars is the closest... Um, easy to live on. Yeah. And I say easy yeah. in air quotes. It's not really easy, but, you know, <laughs> easier, yeah. easier than Venus because Venus is just, you yeah, know, there's, there's so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's so hot. Um, the surface yeah. pressure is just off the charts. It's just horrible. And this acid rain and it's not, just not pleasant. It looks awfully pretty in the pictures, but no, it's not a nice place <laughs> to stay. So, not going there. Mercury's way too hot. so It's too close to the sun. So, that's no good. But, um, yeah, so it's either the moon, the moon first, and then Mars next, and then after that, in terms yeah. of habitable place, habitable places, you really got got to rely on moons um, yeah. orbiting Saturn or Jupiter, and that's pretty much it. There really aren't all that many nice spots, and and the thing is, on Earth was we actually got a good gig here on Earth. It's it's nice, so you know, yeah. um, let's not mess. We, it would be up. nice
1: to, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yes, but but yeah, it's quite nice. it is nice here. Yes, I do. I like the weather. So um, generally. Uh, so anyhow, <laughs> yeah, so that that that's their goal. and it's interesting. I, I love it when people have got an end goal and um, rather like the way they've approached Tesla, like starting out with the roadster and then progressing up to um, the model three is like the model three was actually their goal to start with but, you know, they had to start mm. somewhere and they the, the progression is obvious and logical and they've been very methodical about it and it's been very relatively well executed. And And SpaceX is the same. So, we should probably talk about the vehicles that they've made because that can sort of show the progression as they've learnt more and more about how to do this and how to do it well. So, all of their rockets, uh, they all refer to as the Falcon series of rockets, which uh, I th- I think it's kind of, I'm, I'm trying to understand the etymology of it because I think it's about how the, the the idea is that the falcon glides and maybe it glides back to earth. Maybe that was why they named it Falcon. Um,
1: I, I believe I believe it, it's a reference to the Millennium Falcon.
0: Oh, fine. Oh, of course, because Elon Musk is a yeah a sci-fi guy. That's why the, yeah, they course. have insane and ludicrous mode because a throwback to Spaceballs, <laughs> which is awesome. But anyway, all right, cool. So there you go, Millennium Falcon. It doesn't look anything like the Millennium Falcon, though. I'm just saying. No. 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 <laughs> anyway, it's okay. It's fine. Um, all right. So, the Falcon 1, um, which is uh, aptly named because it was their first one, and its first successful flight was in 2008. And yes, they were on a learning curve because it had three failed launches uh, prior to that. Which is a shame, but this is rocket science. It is not, it's not easy, people. So, anyway, it was a two-stage rocket um, fueled by uh, liquid oxygen and RP-1 fuel. Might be worth mentioning. Um, so, liquid oxygen is just liquefied oxygen, not much else to mm-hmm. it. Um, RP-1, there are so many debates over RP-1 and what it actually stands for. It's sort of like an umbrella terminology that has a couple of... So, you've got Rocket Propellant 1... Rocket propellant number one. Um, some people call it refined petroleum one. Mm. First of all, I don't know what the one's for. It's kind of just like the name that they've given it, and it doesn't seem to have much of a der- derivation. Anyway, it's kind of like a, it's a refined kerosene. Think of it like that. So, kerosene is essentially the preferred jet fuel, uh, but it's a denser, higher energy per, per mass. Um, it's a higher energy density version of kerosene. Uh, essentially it's rocket fuel
1: yeah it, it's essentially jet fuel just just higher energy and also cleaner which is a problem yes. which is an important thing because you have insane temperatures in rocket engines and you don't want impurities in the kerosene uh to to start coking the engines which which means like to to leave this kind of thick residue which would then uh you know eventually clog clog up uh the uh, the, the plumbing of, of the rocket engine you definitely do not want that
0: yeah i do recall actually there's been quite a lot of rocket failures because of impurities in, in the early days and even you know in mm-hmm. recent times um because of that um it's like a wax a wax like kind of um yeah yeah exactly yeah and it and it it tends to because what will happen is it'll, it it seems to change. It's not just necessarily the fuel injection into the combustion chamber, but it's also um, the thrust um, distribution. Because if that thrust just if the bleh, if the thrust distribution isn't correct, then the rocket won't stay on its correct attitude, and it will basically spin out of control. That's my understanding anyway. Yeah,
1: pretty much. The modern rockets have are, are pretty good at correcting. Uh, so they you know they have a closed loop. Uh, system where they, they will monitor uh, the actual position and all the angles and on most modern rockets you have engine gimballing so essentially the, the engine bell can, uh, can move in two axes Although you have there's, there's also like different ways of doing that which you can see on the, on the Soyuz where you have fixed engine bells and then just tiny rocket engines that, that can spin uh, that can move in one axis
0: yeah, there's quite a few different ways of doing it. It's inter- it is interesting, and um, the uh, the Falcon one, uh, I don't think was particularly. It, w- it was, I hate to say, proof of concept, but mm. it kind of was, really, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was. So some of the dimensions. Of these okay, the first failed version actually. Let's talk about the engines briefly. It used Merlin one A engines, and the second version used one um, C's. And uh, the second version of the Falcon 1 would, that used the Merlin 1Cs actually had two out of three successful launches. So it was actually a version of the Falcon 1 that, that actually did work. And they used a lot of that, that, those learnings into the next, the next version, the next model. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was twenty two just a couple of you know, facts and stats about it. It was 22.25 meters high, uh, 1.7 meters in diameter, and it could only really reach low Earth orbit and the maximum payload it could handle it could carry was four hundred and fifty kilograms, which really isn't a heck of a lot. so no so I think saying that it was a proof of concept is I think that's fair enough and 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 not being too mean or anything It was their first rocket so you know fair enough right no,
1: but 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 especially at the time I mean when they started developing it it was two thousand and two it it took them six yeah. years until the the first successful. Uh, yes. Launch and and these days we have more and more um, smaller satellites, you know, constellations of satellites, and we have um, we we have these kind of tiny nanosats which can actually do useful things in orbit. But that's re- relatively recent. So now we have new uh, rockets in development which can lift even less than Falcon One and are and have you know large black of of orders but especially back then there were fewer uses to it and you can see that they had two successful launches and then they moved on to the Falcon 9.
0: Exactly. So pretty
1: much a, a yeah. proof of concept yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But it's it's interesting point about the nano satellites and and so on, uh, because obviously with miniaturisation and um, the technology that we've got is improving all the time. You can put something much more powerful that uses much less energy. Less energy means you need less solar panels. Uh, the whole thing can be smaller and yet still do usable things. And and that's fantastic. So, I think that um, it's a good point. And um, it, it is still a useful rocket in that size range. But from their point of view, and certainly from the point of view of getting someone to Mars, yeah, definitely proof, proof of concept. But the other thing that's interesting about the Falcon 1, it was fully privately funded. It cost them $70 million to develop it, which sounds like a lot of money, but really isn't in the grand scheme of no. things. C- certainly in space transport. In Not- fact, that's insanely cheap, yeah, exactly. actually, isn't it?
1: Exactly. For... For a, for a program to develop a new rocket, um, I mean, the, those, I'm pretty sure, like, at first, though, of its kind. Um, and it, it's very characteristic of, of, of SpaceX to be, to, like, kind of use clever engineering and modern technology to do f- the same things, just much, much more cheaply than in the past.
0: Absolutely. So, you mentioned it before. And um, this is the next big one and uh, the Falcon 9 and I'll say the Falcon 9 series because there's been quite a few of them, three primary models, I suppose you'd call them uh, mm-hmm. and and rather a little bit like the Roadster, they kind of had officially unofficial naming or numbering, I guess you'd call it. But uh, um, so there was the 1.0, the 1.1 and the 1.2, also known as the full thrust. And in the 1.2, there's different block models and it's just like, mm-hmm. okay so apart from the crazy naming and numbering scheme (laughs) let's just start at the beginning which is the version 1.0 of the falcon 9 and isn't it funny when it comes to project product names they say um this is the iphone or this is the falcon 9 but they never call it the 1.0 at the time it's something that they retrospectively name it or i think the expression these days is they retcon it and call it (laughs) 1.0 after the fact (sighs) because no one wants to call their brand shiny, new, amazing product the 1.0. But at some point in time, like the iPhone X or iPhone 10 or the 10X, because they 10X'd it, uh, hmm, that's going to be eventually called the iPhone 10 1.0 or something like that, retrospectively. Or will it? Or will it? Who knows? Sorry, Apple talk there. We're talking about SpaceX right now. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Um, Okay, cool. So, the Falcon 9 1.0... Was, um, the first successful launch was in June of uh, 2010, and the final flight was in March of 2013. Four out of five success ratio, which, you know, I think for a rocket, not too bad, considering it was their second mm-hmm. rocket, was pretty damn good. Um, now, it was, well, it was a two-stage uh, launch vehicle, and once again, just you know, used standard liquid oxygen and RP-1 fuel. Uh, it was 47.8 meters high, 3.66 meters in diameter, which is a common theme for all of the Falcon 9s, uh, and could reach uh, low Earth orbit with a maximum payload of, of uh, 10,450 kilos and geostationary orbit with a maximum payload of 4,450. So this could go all the way to geostationary if you wanted it to. It was partly um, private funded, but there was a little, fair bit of government backing. I'm not sure what the split was, but I do know it cost some 300 million US to develop that uh, the Falcon 9 1.0.
1: Uh, including the Dragon, uh, I believe, which was part of the 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 government funding NASA gave them a lot of money to develop the the Dragon capsule and then uh, serve as the international space station with that so they probably used some of that money to also fund the Falcon 9 project
0: yeah that was my understanding as well we'll talk a bit more about the Dragon later but absolutely and I think it was funny at the time that uh, I think there was a lot of debate uh, amongst well, amongst people, I guess, with opinions, which should be pretty much anybody. But there was debate about whether or not the U.S. government should be paying for uh, private companies to develop space technology. Uh, when it was, you know, you know, when it was considered, oh, well, that's what NASA's for. So why, is, why is the U.S. government funding this, right? And the thing is, uh, the payoff comes shortly. <laughs> so yeah. So skipping along to the one point one. Uh, its first launch was in September 2013, and their final flight was in January of 2016, and it had 14 out of 15 successes. Now, that's, again, pretty exceptional as the number of launches increases, so that's pretty good. It was, again, two-stage vehicle, again, liquid oxygen and RP1 fuel, but it was 68.4 meters high, again, 3.66 meters in diameter, and it could do low-earth orbit payloads of about 10,886 kilos, geostationary is was up to 4,850. But this is where it starts to get a little bit more interesting. Several of the 1.1s had extendable landing legs and grid fins to control their descent. However, the 1.1 never successfully completed a landing of its first stage, if I remember correctly. That no, was, but
1: it got it got very close. It
0: got very very close, but not technically. So, um, the next one is where it it, it goes um very into the high coolness factor. So anyway, but the interesting part was that one point one was when the cost per launch was becoming very compelling at that point, because even mm-hmm. without the reusability, because of the SpaceX design, um, the cost per launch. So in late twenty fifteen for uh, the. They did, the, they did the math and figured out that, well, a Falcon 9 launch would sell at about $90 million to the US government, whereas a non-SpaceX equivalent for the same payload would cost about $400 million to the US government, and the US government being a special customer. So, clearly, at that point, um, the Falcon 9 1.1 was making, uh, making quite a dent in the way that they used to you know, launch stuff to space. So, then people sort of started to see, I think, oh, that's why... NASA is funding a private company, which begs the question, how come SpaceX could do it so much cheaper than NASA? And then you
1: know I'll also note that uh, the ninety million price is with Dragon for NASA, uh, and I believe they charge about sixty million or sixty five million maybe for uh for most commercial customers.
0: yeah, that's right it's che- it's more expensive for the government. Um, I'm trying to remember why that why that was. I just know that it is. But, yeah, so the, the thing is that um, I, I always believed that NASA was sort of a bureau- was a bit bureaucratic um, based on from wherever you have lots of people, you're always going to have bureaucracy. That's just a fundamental reality of the human condition, and it sucks, but that just seems to be the way it is. Uh, and I do believe also that SpaceX was more motivated and not much really happened. Well, I say not much really. That's not very fair to NASA. But, you know, apart from the push to go to the moon, there wasn't a heck of a lot of, like, real political drive and pressure for NASA to um, iterate, evolve, and innovate in the space um, space. (laughs) Space space. My god, that was terrible. Anyway, you know what I mean? It's like there was no driving force, not there wasn't. You know, the International Space Station was distributed amongst multiple countries, and whilst the US put in the vast majority of the money and funding uh, funding and uh, and drive for it, there's no question that it was meant to be an international effort. And and that was different to the to the space race where they put all their money in getting someone to the moon, you know. So, I don't know, I feel like SpaceX was more motivated Uh, in recent times and when you're motivated plus technology plus talent you seem to get a much better result so in any case spacex were starting to make a bit of a dent at this point and it's only recently right that's 2015 so now so now we start talking about what i think is the cool stuff because this is where i see the game changer Uh, so the 1.2 was also called the full throw full thrust or the ft model Um, but anyway um so it gets interesting. So, the first launch was in December of 2015, and it's still flying today. So, it's if you talk about the Falcon 9 today, that's the one we're talking about. And again, it's a two-stage vehicle. So, the second stage, you know, uses liquid oxygen RP-1 fuel, but the first stage now uses sub-cooled liquid oxygen and chilled RP-1, which is sort of like the next iteration of uh, of the technology that they're using.
1: Oh, b- both stages actually are, have... Uh... Subcold uh, propellants. Oh, my mistake. It's funny that, that that you say that after version one point one it gets maximum coolness because it literally does. <laughs> That's good.
0: That's good. Yeah, quite right. Um, yeah. So my my mistake was both stages. So, um, so a little bit about the subcooling and the chilling of the RP one. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yeah. So basically, the the idea is that if you, uh, you know, normally you have rocket propellants at close to their um, to their boiling temperature. So if, if you pour liquid oxygen, it just stays at this temperature, and it continues to evaporate until launch, and then you just top it off. But it stays at the same temperature. That's easy, right? But you can subcool liquid ox- oxygen to around negative two hundred degrees Celsius, and then it's something like ten percent more dense. If it's more dense, you you'll fit more in the same tanks. You have more propellant and you have more thrust because the same uh, the same volume of propellant um, you know will flow into the, the, the engines, but you have more of the propellant in the same uh, volume. The problem with that is you have to fill in the tanks really quickly because like you can't wait because it will warm up quite quickly.
0: Yeah, exactly. And also the the uh, insulation requirements and there's additional energy required to maintain that. And so, it is, it is a slightly more... I think it's a slightly more expensive way of doing it, but you get a far better result in terms of thrust to weight uh, ratio. And that's yeah. ob- obviously the big payoff. So...
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't believe SpaceX does any particular um, insulation on, on their rockets, but they do this crazy fast uh, propellant lo- loading sequence that they will load all of the propellant in 30 minutes. And that's actually what caused the most recent failure, a very complicated, um, um, you know, the the exact reason was very complicated, but it had to do with with that insane, um, you know, insanely low uh, temperature, close to the freezing temperature of of oxygen.
0: Okay. So, that, um, the recent failure you're referring to, that was um, before, I'm trying to remember if that happened before launch or not.
1: yeah, it, it was just sit, standing on the stand and mm. then it blew up, which yeah. is extremely rare. It, it pretty much never happens.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's technically why um, that wasn't counted as a launch attempt because it didn't actually yeah. fail on launch. It failed before launch was attempted. So, because if you look at the stats um, to date, technically it's had 21 successful launches out of 21 attempts, but they didn't count the, oops, it blew up on the, um, before it, yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. It wasn't a launch failure, and the label says launch failure, so it wasn't a launch failure.
0: No, technically not, but still, yeah. And 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 freezing point of uh, of oxygen is uh, is very very cold. So yeah, that's gonna give you that's gonna give you frostbite. So anyway, so that's that. I think thank you for that about the the cooling of the um, the fuel. The the thing is though, this the launch attempts are one thing, and the energy density of the of the fuel is another thing, but. Where it gets interesting is it's the landings. So, this is where we start counting successful landings. Uh, mm-hmm. So, out of the 18 attempted landings of the first stage, 16 have been successful of the Falcon 9 1.2 full thrust thing. And that is awesome. That is absolutely incredible. And the rocket itself is a little bit taller, it's about 70 meters high. Again, 3.66 meters in diameter, and it can reach low Earth orbit with a uh, maximum payload of 10,886 kilos. Geostationary can do 8,300 kilos if it's not landing, Uh, so if it's expendable. But if you want to land it because you've got to carry extra fuel to land again, um, it can only handle 5,500 kilograms. It gives you an idea that you've got basically three tons of fuel on there, uh, which probably shouldn't be too surprising, I don't think. Uh, it kind of makes sense because when it lands, it's a powered landing, right? So, you know, you need to keep fuel for that. Um, anyway, but the design changes in this particular model to the first stage included that, um, including the subcooling of the fuel, improved the, the thrust to weight ratio overall. I mentioned, but the overall improvement efficiency was approximately 30% over the version uh, 1.1. 1. 1. And I mentioned before blocks and this is the part where I I kind of just, I'm tangentially aware of it, maybe you can provide a bit more detail on this, but there's three primary block numbers on this one, block three, four, and five.
1: Um, Yeah, but those are the the ones we know of, and there's been some speculation that I've read that there's been block one and block block two inside the version 1.2, which is didn't know about it because they didn't mention those names. So SpaceX yeah. is very terrible at at naming things. Yeah, um, no kidding. <laughs> but but mostly um, the changes are about the, the I guess the most important changes are about operating the the engines. Um, like again the same engines, but just tweaking the thrust higher and higher, um, and mostly just through software. Like the, because the Falcon Nine. Has nine engines on the first stage, and you know another engine, which is essentially the same engine on the second stage. There, there's ten engines on every uh, flight, and there's been uh, forty-one um, flights of, of the Falcon Nine. So they've tested like four hundred engines, which is a lot. Like because of this architecture, they get to test their engines over you know much much larger numbers than. Uh, than was common in in the past, and because of that, they can push push them hi- higher and higher because you know they over time they have more confidence about what the actual uh, safety margins are.
0: So that's probably that's something that that's worth discussing as well. Is that the architecture of the um, of, of the engines on these? There's 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 sort of two two components. Um, rockets will always. Um, uh, my understanding is that the rockets will always have a central as in the exact center point of the rocket, there will always be an engine there. Um, but the constellation or the structure of the engines around that um, ha- ha- varies. And um, you wanted to have it even equally distributed as much as possible. And I think that the first Falcon 9s had like a, a grid pattern, a grid shape. Um, so, it mm-hmm. kind of like nine dots um, in a square shape, whereas the more recent versions had them in a circle- Around the outside, if I remember correctly, like the the structure, the constellation of them.
1: Yeah, they call it the the octaweb. It's eight engines around the, the perimeter and one in the center, and it's 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 just it's more efficient. Actually, it's uh, it takes less. It just takes literally less metal to fit them together.
0: This way. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Because one of the tricks with that, obviously, is when you've got more than one engine is that you need to control the rate of, um, of burn on each of those engines to get an equal thrust from each of them and whether or not you use those. Because um, I, I think that part of the difficulty with ro- um, with rocketry in, in that in that context is balancing those flows so that the rocket stays on track and whether or not you're using that entirely that for attitude adjustments or whether or not you're using thrusters or... Um, yeah, it's quite. It can get. It depends on how you want to do it. And I and I wasn't. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, with with modern um, computers, it's it's not that difficult. Uh, Falcon Nine actually has an an engine out capability. So if one of the engines just stops working, uh, the others can compensate for that, and then they will have to kind of gimbal and correct so that the rocket stays pointing in the right direction, even though you don't have. Um, you know, engines, uh, you know, all pointing down, uh, but it it can be done. And actually the the one failure you've mentioned in the version 1.0 was because of that. Uh, One engine blew out and the rocket continued working and it delivered the primary payload, which was a uh, servicing mission to the International Space Station. Uh, But because NASA, the primary uh, uh, customer, didn't want any further deviations. They didn't allow uh, the second stage to then um, you know, uh, stay on for longer or something like that so that they could deliver the, the second payload. So the, the engine blew out and the rocket, it would be a, a total uh, success in principle. Uh, and that's only because they have nine engines and so they can lose one. And as long as you're not on the edge of capability, uh, I believe it can actually lose two engines and it can still perform.
0: That's pretty impressive. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I sort of yeah, I, one of the things I think about is I think about the uh, the Saturn V, which we'll talk about later on, but uh, just for comparative mm-hmm. purposes. But um, yeah, it, rather than having lots of engines, it had only it had fewer, but they were much larger engines. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's 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 an interesting idea. Is that in theory, if if you have more engines, then you can lose one or two, uh, and if you had enough of them, maybe even three, and still have enough thrust to reach escape velocity and and, and deliver the payload. But uh, obviously, the more engines you add, the more complicated it becomes to control your your thrust. So it's um yeah yeah it's an interesting problem.
1: Yeah, and uh, it also has to do with uh, SpaceX's history that they started with the Falcon One, which had one of those Marlin One engines. And then they continued uh, developing those engines and the version we have on the Falcon 9. It's still the same basic architecture. And so we've went from Falcon 1 to Falcon 9, which has nine of those engines and then a vacuum version of the same engine on the second stage. So you have just one model uh, of an engine. That, That makes things simpler from manufacturing perspective, which is also a uh, a, a big um, advantage but one thing about this architecture which is unique so far for, uh, to Falcon 9 is the fact that it takes very little thrust to land a near empty rocket and it wasn't a consideration before because no one landed rockets propulsively no. but now they do and so when they land a Falcon 9 it has just one of those engines throttled way down to the minimum which is uh, 40% and most rocket engines can't throttle that down and that 40% of just one engine is still more thrust it is still um, you know more energy than than necessary so they they have to stop before landing at just the perfect moment because otherwise they'll still (laughs) they'll keep going up.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about it, there was no need to throttle back an engine to only 40% be- yeah. because you wanted maximum thrust, you didn't want minimum thrust <laughs> um, yeah. trying to launch previously. So, it, it is a fascinating problem when you turn it around. And the thing that, that for me is so impressive is watching... Um, I, I particularly enjoy this. That There was a, time, a time-lapse video that showed the launch trail and of, of a... Um, of a SpaceX launch, and then the first stage coming back to re- to land again, and it was to exactly the same spot, and it's just absolutely beautiful thing to watch, and just incredible. And I, I love the fact that um, they recognise that um, the full reuse and uh, of the equipment is is the best way to reduce costs in the long term, and um, it-, it just it makes so many things easier. You can actually produce. Uh, you don't have to produce as many in order to have as, the same number of launches. And uh, if they can get the turnaround time uh, down uh, to, to basically scrub them up, clean them up, get them resealed and refitted and ready for launch again, uh, then it should, in theory, mean that you can increase the rate at which you can launch things into space. So that's all, um, that's all pretty awesome. And honestly, it is very, very impressive. But as the, that is the current, current model that they've got. The Falcon 9 Full Thrust is their current one. And uh, uh, the cost of it um, in terms of development was similar to the 1.1. The cost for launch is very similar as well. But the the cost reductions will start to be realized in in coming years. And I think the price is coming down. So, the next thing to talk about that is sometimes referred to and has been for quite some time is the Falcon Heavy. And I think the problem with the Falcon Heavy is that it's been delayed for quite a long time. (laughs) um and i
1: I, yes
0: yeah i i say delayed because you know elon musk has this thing where he says yeah optimistically speaking but he doesn't say optimistically he says um (laughs) yeah no, it's going to be it's going to happen by this time so anyway i think well
1: you you just you just have to correct for the the elon standard time
0: (laughs) yes exactly right oh dear anyway so um it's all good but yeah so i think it's been delayed for about five years but mm-hmm. the thing that's interesting, the, sorry.
1: Uh, there, there's a funny uh, chart on, on the web uh, showing the difference between the the scheduled time and the current time that, that's in Wikipedia. Because for the last five years, we are about six months away from launch. Oh, and, that's uh, true, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it still hasn't happened.
0: Yeah, I know, I know the chart you're talking about. There'll be a link in the show notes to that one. And it is hilarious. But at the same time, I can kind of understand why. Because if you read through um, yeah. the history, they're focusing on getting the other technology right first. And, yeah. you know, so, all right, let's just talk about the Falcon Heavy and what it is. So, it's first of all, it's intended to be a launch vehicle that could lift payloads to the Moon, Mars, and other planets. And so, it's the ultimate realization of what Ellen's trying to achieve. But the design of it is still based on the Falcon 9 platform. So, a Falcon 9 would be the core rocket and the there'd be two additional Falcon 9 first stage as uh, operating as boosters and they'd be attached um, just hor- like horizontally opposed to each other opposite each other having you want to think about it so <clears throat> rather like the Falcon 9 1.2s uh, it'll be it's expected to be 70 meters high again the main section will be 3.66 meters in diameter but with the additional boosters be 12 point2 meters wide and and um, it should reach low Earth orbit with a maximum payload of sixty-three thousand eight hundred kilos, which is quite a bit more, and uh, geostationary orbit with a maximum payload of two twenty-six thousand seven hundred kilos, which is again quite a bit more. But things get a little bit more interesting, and when you have a look at the suggested launch payloads to get to um, uh, Mars, <laughs> and it's suggested it could do sixteen thousand eight hundred kilos to Mars, and Pluto is even quoted. I don't know why. I can't imagine <laughs> that they're launching anything with the intent to go to Pluto of um, 3,500 kilos. But I think that's just there I, for fun. <laughs> I
1: don't know. No, I, I think they mentioned it because they updated the, the numbers at one point, which was just around the New Horizons uh, mission to, to Pluto. And oh, okay. that's the only reason, because it was on people's minds.
0: Yeah, I just I found just like who launches stuff to go to Pluto and how often does that happen <laughs> really, but anyway, I just I sort of robbed. Thought, yeah, okay, thanks, thanks, Alan. Anyway, it's all good. Um, so yes, lifting a hell of a lot more, and um, I guess the problem is that um, the the reinforced Falcon Nine at the core, uh, and then of course attaching on the boosters and such. There's no intention in the in the initial version of the Falcon Heavy for it to be reusable. Although the technology exists on the Falcon 9 and it's been pretty well tested, pretty thoroughly at this point, and, and it's been quite successful. Um, there's the, in the initial stages of the Falcon Heavy, it's not going to be reusable. They're just they're, they're going to keep that out of it just to keep it simple. But then in future versions, it's intended to be again. First stages will be fully reusable. That's the intent. But yeah.
1: wait, I, I I actually I don't think that's true. No. I, I'm pretty sure they're going to reuse at least the side boosters. Uh, the The latest plan that I know of is to land the two side boosters on the demo mission on the two uh, ground pads, and then the, the 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 center core on a barge.
0: Okay. Well, last I okay, maybe I misunderstood. But my understanding was that the um, that they weren't going to try and do that until um, until a, a few flights in. Uh, maybe I, I misunderstood. Um, I hope that is true. Though. I hope you're right. Um, my, that was just my understanding. So I, I do, I do think that the Falcon Heavy is supposedly going to have that that demonstration that you just mentioned. Uh, that's supposed to be happening later this year, I think.
1: Yeah, I said Um, supposed to be (laughs) next year. Next year, it's going to be next year. For for the first time, we're we're sure it's happening because all of the free core boosters are done. They they've they've been built. They've been tested. uh, They work. And actually, the two um, uh, side boosters are are converted Falcon nines which have landed. Those those are used rockets already. Um, So it it's really the first time in the five years where. It might be a few months away, but we actually have flight hardware, just waiting for cool. the 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 pad to be ready and whatnot.
0: Awesome, and I'll talk a little bit about the pad in a few minutes as well. So that's it's potentially it's very exciting, but it's also going to be very nerve wracking. And I think watching the the Falcon Heavy launch is going to be a very nerve wracking experience. Um, so yes, it'd be interesting. So in terms of the the milestones, and I think that it's uh, it's important just to touch on some of the uh, some of the firsts. For, for SpaceX with their rockets uh, and their rocket programs. So, um, the Falcon 1 flight number 4 was the first privately funded liquid fuel rocket to reach orbit. That was on the 28th of September of 2008. Um, the Falcon 9 second flight was the first privately funded company to launch orbit and recover a space vehicle. That was the 9th of December 2010. And that's like just, you know, recover, not land itself. Um uh, flight number three was the first private company to send a space vehicle to the International Space Station. That was the 25th of May of 2012. Flight number seven of the Falcon 9 was the first private company to deliver a payload to geostationary orbit. That was the 3rd of December in 2013. So, that's not that long ago. That's only about four years. Flight number 20... Mm-hmm. 20- was the first landing of an orbital rocket's primary stage on land. That was the 22nd of December 2015. That was a big one. And then uh, Flight 23 was the first landing of an orbital rocket primary stage on a sea-based platform. That was the 8th of April of 2016. Flight number 32 was the first relaunch and landing of a used orbital rocket and a controlled flyback and recovery of a payload fairing. That was on the 30th of March this year, 2017. And then, um, most recently, uh, Flight Thirty Five, um, the first relight of a commercial uh, re- reflight, I should say, of a commercial cargo spacecraft, as the third of June, twenty seventeen. So, honestly, um, it's and it's it just it's just very impressive. It's how what they've achieved in such a short period of time, truly impressive.
1: Yeah, very much so. And <laughs> I remember watching the the live feed for the the mission that that first landed. There was also a, a first launch after a failure when the Falcon 9 blew up uh, during flight and it was like 2am in the morning my time and it was quite nerve-wracking um, for, a, for a fan because like maybe it will blow up again and it actually landed and it was, it was amazing and then since then we had two reflights so we had two used rockets fly again and that has worked and at the time of the recording, I believe today's uh, from today there will be the third mission to, to do so. Um, so that's pretty amazing.
0: I I, I want to know when um, have they actually had a flight yet? And this is, oh, I wasn't I'm not sure about. Maybe you know if they've actually flown and reflown a primary stage uh, more than once. Uh, I
1: oh no 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 um, they they haven't done that. Actually, the the problem is that they are so successful with. Uh, with the landings these days. They, they've done, what, 10, 15 successful landings? I don't even remember. Uh, they, six, they've landed 16, so many, 16, yeah. Yeah, mm. they've landed so many stages that they don't have anything, they don't have a use for them because there aren't that many customers yet willing to to fly. People are, are scared to put their expensive um, satellite on top of a, a used rocket. So it will take a while until people are, are convinced that's why there's only been two so they're 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 actually you know perfectly good rockets which yeah. have flown and successfully landed that they've stripped the engines from them wrapped the the core in in like um, you know shrink wrap and just put it outside because they don't they don't even have a place to to store all those rockets
0: yeah that's it that's the funny thing is that they've had such a high success ratio recently that i had heard that they were having trouble storing them
1: um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So it's like that's yeah. crazy, but the thing is, I
1: I, I I literally saw a a Falcon Nine like from a from a bus window on a uh, Kennedy Space Center tour, just sitting there, like a perfectly good rocket which costs wow. sixty million, and it's just wrapped in plastic. <laughs> it's insane.
0: It's crazy, hey. Eh? the The thing is, uh, the funny thing is, there will come a time, uh, and maybe we're we're closer to this time then people realize that people look at a used uh, rocket as being somehow lesser than a brand new one. And Mm -hmm. if once your mind shifts from um, this idea that new is better, think of it as a used rocket is proven. So, a used rocket's proven that it can survive, go up and back more than once, makes it more reliable than something that is brand new, potentially. And once you sort of cross that bridge in your mind, you'll realise, okay, um, this is the way we should be doing things, rather than the old method, which was, well, it's too difficult to reuse it, so because we can't land it neatly, so let's just not worry and we'll just throw it away, and hey, lots of money and who cares? So you know, but of course now there isn't lots of money, and they're trying to revolutionise the cost of launch. Then this is just gonna, ha- this is just the way it has to be from now on. So hopefully, the attitudes of um, commercial satellite launch um, of, of commercial satellite manufacturers will change, and companies will start to trust them more.
1: Yeah, we're we're not quite there yet. Uh, the two Falcon nines that have um, relaunched took several months of refurbishment. Uh, now, my understanding from everything they've said is that there there is nothing like fundamental that you know fundamentally there's not that much work to be to be done to refly. It's just that because we're we're so early, in such early stages, they are extremely cautious, and so they will take you know take the rocket apart to the to every knot and bolt to verify it, you know just out of caution because it would really you know it would be a PR disaster to have one of used rockets blow up in the air. Um, but fundamentally, like in the in a few years. That will be actually the case. So right now, SpaceX and Elon will, will talk about flight-proven rockets. That's the actual phrase they use. And right now, it's kind of funny, but we will get to that point very soon. I mean, f- thinking of a, an airplane, I will you know, feel much safer on a plane that has flown 100 times than a plane which is flying the first time. And yes. with rockets, hopefully, soon enough, that will be the same thing.
0: Yeah. And that's a great analogy. Once a plane has been flying for 30 years and it's done how many hundreds of thousands of, 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 kilometers of flight around the world or flight hours around the world, then you would say, okay, it's time to retire it because the airframe's probably full of, uh, you know, f- full of, uh, dislocations and everything from all of the vibrations and flexing over the years. It's time to retire the aircraft and that's fine. And rockets will be, I think, eventually no different. It'll be, they'll have, um, the high risk period of when it first flies for the first flight, maybe the first two flights. And then after that, it'll be, that'll be my preferred kind of rocket. It'll be, I'd like a, a rocket that's been up at least a couple of times, please. I'll have one of those. And after it's had about 200 or 300 launches, whatever the number turns out to be based on the materials used and so on, failure analysis and all that, then they'll say, well, I no longer want to use a, this is now too old. And but even that concept applied to rockets is mind-blowing to me because my whole life, it's all been up goes the rocket and then burn up on re-entry, and that's the end of it. So, it's like, wow, okay, this is just amazing. So, thoroughly, thoroughly impressed, and I can't wait for, to see how this goes for the next five years. It's going to be crucial. So, talked a little bit about launch and launch sites, and I do want to talk about... Um, um, the launch pad at thirty uh, nine A at some just in a minute, but I also want to talk about the space launch because they talk about the drone ship. Could you sort of talk a little bit, a little bit about how what what SpaceX have done in that uh, in that space?
1: <laughs> in that space. Oh no, so, there we go again. Uh, yeah, again. Uh, they've converted a few barges. They they added um, thrusters to to like or all, all for. Um, uh, all four corners of the barge, so that it can stay in one place. And they will, you know, when uh, when trying to land, landing on land is preferable because it's simpler. Because you don't have to like you just get a crane and you store it in a hangar somewhere, and that's it. Um, but it takes it takes more fuel. It takes more energy to land on land. So when they can't do that because of uh, how Heavy the payload is because of the energy requirements of a mission, they will try to land on a barge uh, that's you know like f- I think 300 or 500 kilometers um, you know down from from the launch site and that just takes less energy but it's it's, it's pretty amazing because um, like what, one of the interesting things about it is that the rocket and the and the, the barge or the autonomous space drone ship as they call it because it's a drone ship, it stays in one place, is that um, it doesn't communicate with the rocket. They, all, they, they both use GPS to point at the same coordinates and then they, you know, when everything works, the rocket will just appear on the barge, but they don't, they don't see each other until like the last second when rather um, Altimeter can, can see like the exact uh, altitude from, from, from the deck. And it just you know also uses space technology for very high precision uh, location.
0: It's interesting how much we've come to rely on GPS because, as I understand it as well, the Dragon, um, sorry, not Dragon, um, the Falcon rockets also use GPS for uh, as part of their launch um, uh, positioning uh, control.
1: Yeah, and 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 because because they're a rocket, they have access to the higher uh, precision GPS then than mere mortals do. So, I believe a GPS is um, precise to 10 meters or, or one meter, and I believe the kind of unlogged version is uh, precision to 10 centimeters. So, it's actually very precise.
0: Yeah, exactly right. They do actually have a distortion um, in imp- such that you can't achieve that level of precision unless you are certified by by the military. So, yeah, only the United States military and who they give it out to have that level of precision. Although you could argue that other competing technologies um, that exist as well, I think GLONASS, for example, um, uh, that it's a different situation. But, yeah, certainly for GPS. But what I find is fascinating is how how that technology has just made such an enormous difference. Just position, being aware of a precise position, in three-dimensional space on the planet and even in between the surface of the planet and space has turned out to be such a game changer and revolutionized the world in so many different ways that I don't think anyone could have ever foreseen. I just find that fascinating.
1: And it's it's easy to forget. I mean, it's just something we rely on and we forget that it took, it took big rockets and very complicated engineering and a lot of science and um, to be able to do that and there's a constellation of what like 20 or 30 GPS satellites yep. out there which have to correct constantly and take into account time dilation like it's really insane for it to just work and it yeah. just works.
0: Yeah that's it and, and uh, I, I find the time dilation effect to be quite fascinating uh, and because yeah. all of them have got atomic clocks on them and the atomic clocks were all synchronized um, on, on Earth before they were launched and just thinking through the mechanics of that and it's it is truly incredible. So those the GPS satellites that we've got, um, if they were to fail, then there would be a massive series of ramifications. I mean, people don't realise actually that uh, that the mobile mobile phone or cellular networks are all synchronised via GPS clock, and um, without mm. without that, they would not work at all. And it's just yeah, it would be a massive meltdown, hey, if if we lost the GPS satellites. So anyway, all right, cool. So. Um, Now that we've talked a little bit about that launch launch pad, let's also talk a little bit about the actual launch pad um, uh, in Florida. So, um, LC-39A, uh, SpaceX recently signed, I think recently, it was only a few years ago, a a 20-year lease on that launch pad. And the thing that I found interesting is that the way in which they do their integration of their rockets, so assembling all the pieces prior to launch, um, vertical versus horizontal integration uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So um, historically, for all of the the big NASA projects, the the rockets, the the stages of the rocket have been um, mounted together vertically, and so when you had the the Saturn V, the Apollo program rocket, it had three stages, and then uh, the the Apollo capsule and the uh, launches escape. Um, uh, tower, it's been a lot of pieces and they will all, all fit together one on top of the other. And that's really difficult because Saturn V is uh, about 100 meters tall and and so you needed an insane amount of uh, infrastructure for that. You needed the, the really big um, vehicle assembly building which is an insanely big building. Uh, you needed uh, these really long uh, crawler ways, which is like seven kilometer of you know really precise track, and this massive uh, crawler that also uh, serves as a launch platform for that rocket, right? And you, you need cranes, and it's just it's just really complicated. Um, but that's how things were done, and what SpaceX is doing is it um, it does horizontal integration. And so you have the two stages of the rocket and then either a, a Dragon capsule or a payload fairing. And you know, they, they build those rockets horizontally and then they truck them in into the hangar and then they fit them together again horizontally and they put them on what's called a transporter erector. So it's, it's, you know, it goes into the hangar on uh, rail tracks And a small, simple crane will just lift horizontally the rocket onto the transporter erector and it will go out, what, 200 meters maybe to the launch pad and it will uh, lift the rocket uh, up since transporter erector. It will, uh, you know, and it will just hold the rocket in place until launch. But only at the very last stage when you are at the actual launch pad will the rocket be lifted into vertical position. And it's just so much simpler and so much cheaper.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting, uh, it's funny. I think that's back to why they did vertical uh, integration historically, and I suppose in, it made a lot of things easier and and Maybe it was the the concern about going from horizontal to vertical, and whether or not something would be damaged in that uh, in that process. Maybe that was what drove it. But if you look at the like the buildings that they had to have in order to do that integration, those things are inor- enormous, just enormous. And yeah. like you said, one hundred meters is 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 very very high uh, for the Saturn V. Um, the Space Shuttle wasn't, I don't think, quite that high. Um, no. No, but it was still a significantly large building. So, uh, it's interesting because I think um, because SpaceX have actually built their own their own building for the horizontal integration, I think. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, and it's just a simple hangar. There's oh, yeah, nothing but special you know, about it, right? Yeah, it just It's just a hangar, some track, and a simple overhead crane, right? I, I, I don't know the, the details for Saturn V and Space Shuttle, uh, but I know that, for example, the Atlas V rocket, which lifts uh, mostly U.S. military payloads, also does uh, vertical integration, and it also has this um, pretty insane integration building. Um, the, the, the company actually has two, one for the Atlas V and one for the Delta IV. And I don't remember which is which, but one of them has the, the, the launch platform move along track and then the other has the, the the integration building move along track, which That's, is, you know, wow. having a, what, uh, 50, 60, 70 meter, I'm not sure, tall building move along rail tracks is pretty insane. But um, I believe part of the reason why they do that is for some of the military payloads. Um, I believe yeah. that there are some... Um, You know, for some spy satellites, you have very delicate optics which do not take very well the the move from horizontal to vertical. Um, Now, of course, they won't say that, and but they will still do that for all of the launches because you don't want to um, you don't want to you know show which launches need that, and so actually SpaceX will will build a like a small crane on near their launch tower to vertically integrate just the payload fairing for um for military contracts because of that because they require that capability but it's just a crane for the payload and not the whole rocket so it's still much cheaper much simpler
0: yeah the whole the whole final assembly and integration pieces is is really quite fascinating and, and uh it's, it's interesting because the rockets itself you think oh the rocket is uh is where all the technology is but it's it's just about how you as it's, it's much about how you integrate it before you launch as well that's that makes a huge difference uh, as as well as some of the designs of the uh, the payloads payload covers and so on and, and and the capsules which I think we should probably talk, uh, move on to at this point that the and particularly we mentioned it earlier on in the episode about the dragon capsule and mm-hmm. that was originally developed the original one was for um was for cargo i think it was it was originally Launch. i think the first one was launched in 2010 i think thereabouts. are yeah. about and um the more recent versions is far more interesting the dragon uh, the version two and it's got a whole bunch of different names some of them are called the dragon two some people call it the um the crew dragon and uh anyway and it can handle up to seven people and it's it's designed to carry a crew uh or cargo i i believe it can also be fitted out for cargo yeah, as well yeah 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 so um so yeah, I wasn't sure how much there was to say about the, 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 the crew one. I know it's got bigger windows. Um, <laughs> it, it has windows.
1: Yeah, it, it, it has windows. Um, it has a, a different door. It's more advanced. You know, it, it, it's, it's so small compared to, to the rocket, but it's still close to as expensive and takes so much time to, to develop. And the fact that crew is supposed to be there is, is a large part of it. But but the most interesting thing about Dragon 2 is that it has these pretty powerful uh, Super Draco engines and um, the idea was that they would serve for um, launch escape so in case the rocket is about to blow up then um, the, the capsule will separate from the rocket and uh, the, the the engines on the capsule, they're very small and not very powerful compared to the rocket, but because the capsule uh, doesn't weigh too much, it has much higher acceleration than the rocket, so it will be able to get away from the fireball uh, very quickly, and it, it's a novel way of approaching it. Uh, traditionally, you'd have a, a tower on top of the capsule with uh, solid rocket motors, and this uses liquid propellants. But also the idea was, um, and this has been delayed and maybe scrapped but the idea was that those engines would also allow a propulsive landing you know soft propulsive landing on land just like uh, the Falcon rocket instead of opening parachute uh, parachutes and landing somewhere in the ocean.
0: Yeah, the the parachute method has um the the problem is the cost of recovery. If you can have a nice soft landing, then obviously there's less impact damage to the vehicle, and there's and you know you can have a much more controlled, precise location. And I, if I remember correctly, there's uh, I think there's um two no sorry there's four pairs of Super Draco engines I think on the V yeah. two yeah, yeah 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 so uh, it's it's certainly um and the whole ability to escape is um on a launch failure is uh, it's very very technically complicated you have to figure out very quickly that you need to, to detach and then to separate yourself from that like you said from the fireball um, not easy to pull off
1: no but, um, but you know <laughs> uh, this uh, this has um, like in in the whole of um, uh, space exploration like all of space flights um, Only, I believe, 18 people have died, 14 of which on two spatial um, failures. And guess what? Space shuttle could not really abort. It did not have such capability because it's not a capsule. Uh, But all of the other capsules did. And I believe there's um, a few examples of Soyuz missions where um, the astronauts would be saved because of uh, because of the, the launch escape tower.
0: Yes. All right, cool. So, look, that's Dragon. Um, I think that um, that'll be interesting to see because they haven't flown a V2. Um, I don't believe yet, have they?
1: No, no. Um, Not even a test they, one yet? Yeah, I believe probably... I, I think that actually they have scheduled for the end of the year, the first test mission, demonstration mission, or maybe next year, but it's probably going to be next year anyway. So, um, so there's that. And then the plan is for the end of 2018 or maybe early 2019 to have a first crewed mission uh, to the ISS. But it's another project that that has been delayed and delayed and delayed. But there's steady progress just in Elon's standard time.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right, okay, moving on. Um, let's talk a little bit about the spacesuit. Because that's a more recent <laughs> development, yeah. So, the thing that was a bit surprising is I had no idea, and maybe I just wasn't following along closely enough, but I, w- I had no idea that, that SpaceX were developing their own spacesuits. But, yeah. yeah. So, on the 23rd of August, so, really only a couple months ago, or, you know, something like that, uh, Ellen posted images of the spacesuits on Instagram, um, <laughs> which... You got to admit, it's a bit of an interesting way to do a press release. It's almost like there's no press department yeah. at SpaceX. I mean, I know there is, but <laughs> it's almost like there is. Like, who needs a who needs a press release? You can just put on Instagram, anyway. And anyway, so look, having looked at these and compared them with NASA and and you know European Space Agency issue spacesuits and such, they certainly look a lot less bulky. And yeah, whatever practical method or measure matters. Always relevant to a spacesuit, they look nicer and more sleek. But does that matter? I don't know. I, it's just... I just I find it interesting that he said, yep, it was hard to get fashion and function to to work well together. And I'm like, what does fashion have to do with it? <laughs> it's like, I'm going well, to... Sp-
1: well, yeah. Once you get to colonizing Mars, or if you do want to get to colonizing Mars, you have to make space cool. And those bulky... <laughs> Uh, Apollo era spacesuits—they're not cool. <laughs> oh man! They—they—they just... they do not look fun to wear at all.
0: I—I I think that from a flexibility point of view, and making sure that the suit doesn't get in the way and interfere with your um, mobility as much as possible—that is absolutely practical. But I think we're a real long way from from us having a um, you know, a contest over who's got the nicer looking spacesuit. <laughs> I'm just saying. But, hey, anyway, (laughs) and who knows, maybe someday like um, Armani will release this version of a spacesuit and i will be like, no, no, man, I got an Armani spacesuit. So okay. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) it's just hard to find the whole thing to be a bit odd, but, you know, they do look very nice. But
1: did they say... it? it, it? Mm. it, It's funny because um, a picture of this actually leaked a long time ago, but no one took it very seriously because it looked like a a concept art. And then they released the image, which... um, which looks pretty much the same. And it's, it's not just a concept art, it's an actual working prototype, which has been tested, pressurized and whatnot.
0: Did they say um, any, give any idea of when they would might, most, most likely be first put to uh, real world use? Because I, I, um, I'm not sure even when that's planned or even if that's been released.
1: Uh, I believe they're going to be used on all of the crewed missions. And let me look at up real quick. Um, I think the first, yeah, the first crude demo is planned for August 2018. So, probably early 2019 is, is when it's going to happen.
0: Well, L on standard time and all that. So, yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, cool. So, yeah, um, spacesuit. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Nice. Um, I, I think that it's it's good that, that, that they looked at it, but yeah, anyway, that's... Uh, Anyway, but that's all good. So that's that. Um, not sure what else there is to say about the spacesuits. To be honest, I just wanted to mention it because there's another thing SpaceX are working on. And um, the other thing uh, I did mention, sort of briefly, was the because um, you know you mentioned the uh, that you saw one of the Falcon nines, the reused ones in shrink wrap. Yeah. Uh, I was very <laughs> I was very fortunate um, back in '97 when I was in North America at, at that point, and I was in I was in um, I was spending a lot of time in Dallas working for Nortel. And um, I was able to visit Houston and the Johnson Space Center, and I walked around the Apollo 18 uh, Saturn V rocket. Uh, that was in the days yeah. bef- before they built the building over it because of corrosion, um, corrosion issues and such. Um, but uh, in any case... Um, the thing that I just wanted to quickly mention about that was that, uh, and I meant to mention this before, is that the, uh, the the Saturn V is still the tallest, heaviest, most powerful operational rocket ever produced. But And its payload or low-Earth orbit was 140,000 kilos, which is still more than double than that of the current Falcon yeah. Heavy projections, but still.
1: Um, most powerful by uh, by far. Like, yeah. There's a large margin. It's just that there hasn't been... An, much motivation to do that again. Like Saturn V was insanely complicated and expensive, but Cold War. And so, that's why.
0: Yeah. And I think also that the whole approach and attitude towards uh, like the whole idea of of orbital rendezvous and um, sending up multiple pieces and sending up separate fuel and having multiple launches rather than doing it all in one hit I think mm-hmm. that that approach is is going is is much more sensible because you can get away with much much smaller rockets and have like two or three launches all assisting the one mission to the moon, rather than putting all your eggs in one basket or on one rocket, as it were. So I think that that's actually a far more sensible approach. To be perfectly honest, and I actually think the Saturn V was more like a uh, more like a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's like you know, <laughs> here's this monster of a rocket go. I mean, it was a three stage well, rocket. And it was just enormous.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, anyway. Right now, I would, I would agree, but I, I guess the, 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 the interesting thing is um, SpaceX's plan for the next big thing, and it is a big uh, thing. Yeah, and, that's what I want to talk about now, yes. Yeah, but because the, the, the thing is that once you get to full reusability, now the equation changes, because with Saturn V, yeah, it's, it's an insane rocket, but the thing with Falcon 9 is you're recovering the first stage, which is very big. It's the largest part of the rocket, and it costs the most. But you're still on only, in quotes, recovering you know, 70% of the value of the rocket. And there's just no practical way of recovering the second stage yet. You have to get much bigger in scale to make that viable.
0: Yeah. So the thing that's interesting about... Um the next generation or the next uh, after the Falcon series is... Um, so, they're going uh, Elon Musk, okay, in, he's been teasing this for years, but it was really in mid... I think it was mid-2016, maybe it was September of 2016, um, Elon Musk announced the details about SpaceX's long-term strategy with uh, a much, much larger rocket for interplanetary, interplanetary transportation. And I think they called it the ITS, Interplanetary Transportation System. And it was mm-hmm. a, con- a concept design... And its goal was to have mass transportation of people and cargo to and from Mars as a regular shuttle service, if you'd like, between the two. But not a shuttle, but shuttle service without the shuttle. You know what I mean? Not a space shuttle. Anyhow. So, that was really, really fascinating. And was just recently, only uh, only a month or so ago, I think it was at the time of recording, um, there's a, some, a slightly smaller revision of that, that concept. And... I think that the idea, I'm trying to remember the scale of these, was that um, it was going to launch uh, several hundred people as opposed to just seven, yeah. and the scale of these rockets would be would be huge. And, and there'd be a constellation of like, there was a 39 engines or something like that on the original one from last year.
1: The original one, I believe, had 42 engines on the first stage, which is absolutely yeah. insane.
0: Yeah, no one's ever done that. That's insane. <laughs> But yeah, and it was going to be like the outside ones were fixed, and the center core was going to be on a gimbal or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. So but yeah, yeah. I, I, I believe some of them would gimbal, and some of them, for simplification, wouldn't. Uh, which is just because once you get to forty-two, um, like <laughs> it becomes very complicated. That, that's that's part of the reason why Falcon um, Heavy has been so delayed and delayed. Part of it is just because of how Falcon 9 architecture has evolved but part of it is it looked easy to just trap additional rockets on the sides but then it turns out that when you have 27 engines on the bottom of the rocket it becomes really complicated. You have to time it perfectly, um, the calculations for you know fluid dynamics for all of the exhaust get, get much more complicated. It's just really hard and no one has attempted to to build a rocket with that many engines, 42. Uh, the closest would be the the failed Soviet moon uh, rocket, the N1, which had something like 30 uh, engines or so, mm-hmm. and it failed quite spectacularly.
0: Yeah, that didn't go so well. Um, and, and I think that something that you alluded to before was the fact that they've la- had so many um, multiple engine uh, rocket launches that the aggregate total... Of individual yeah. rockets um, engines that they've launched, that gives them a much better. They're in a much better position than the, I think that the Soviets were at that point. For which is an interesting um, position to be in. So um, it, it's it's going to be interesting um, to see how that pans out. Actually, um, now the revised the revised version was was us on a slightly smaller scale and more focused on the moon at this point, which you know with the longer term strategy to go to Mars, which. I think, you know, is far more sensible. So, Alan's been talking more about the moon recently, I think.
1: Yeah, uh, historically, Elon has not been talking much about the moon. Elon is not, I guess, (laughs) a big fan of of the moon, maybe. Um, I mean, well, maybe not not that. It's just that um, the moon doesn't, like in the grand vision of Elon Musk, the moon doesn't give us that much in terms of um, colonization. They're just a lot more... Uh, useful stuff on Mars and that's the thing that is kind of gives the humanity backup so that's kind of the grand goal for Elon Musk but in terms of um, strategy going to the moon first makes much more sense if only because it's much cheaper it's much um, closer to to get there it takes a smaller rocket and SpaceX is a private entity so uh, building a, a smaller rocket is you know makes a huge difference
0: yeah, exactly right. So, uh, I think that was always the the general strategy um, from a NASA point of view back when this was a thing, uh, way back, was to go <laughs> to you know, colonize the moon, right? But that just the problem is the economics and what's the driver other than saying, yeah, we got people on the moon. You know, it's kind of in, in terms of science and and such, you can get most of that done on the international space station in a ninety minute Earth orbit, which is a heck of a lot cheaper to get to and from, and you can get most yeah. of that experimentation and and such and uh, scientific discovery done in microgravity in a 90-minute earth orbit uh, rather than having to go to the moon because if you go to the moon you build a, a lunar base it's like yay I'm on the moon it, okay <laughs> but anyway I don't mean to sort of sound old meh about it but it's just you know I, I understand the mentality but you can road you can road test and trial out stuff uh, like the, the same type of technology that you would use, even though the moon has no atmosphere, at least, yeah. you know, you could road test and harden a lot of technologies by developing a moon base first, which I think, you know, makes more sense. But whether or not you would launch a whole bunch of stuff and then sort of like park it at the moon and then head to Mars, I think that was one of the ideas like going back 20, 30 years. But that doesn't make much sense because, I mean, then you still got to escape from the moons. The moon still does have gravity. So, you know, yeah. why would you why would you launch things like fuel... And then put them on the moon's surface, and then relaunch them off the moon surface doesn't make any sense. You just you just park it up in in orbit somewhere and grab it when you needed it, which was you know part of the interplanetary transport system uh, idea and that full reuse thing. So it's it, it's exciting times ahead, but we could be twenty years away from having you know regular travel to and from Mars. Maybe thirty years away. I, I'd be surprised if it was going to happen much sooner than that, uh, because Elon's standard time. The grander the scale, the longer the delay, and that's okay that's fine
1: yeah, it's true um, on the other hand, it really depends on on the success of the 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 new rockets the bfr they they, they it's right now it's just a code name, a big uh, falcon rocket or a big something else rocket <laughs> uh, um, yeah we're
0: not going to say that, but yes the is the yeah. big yes
1: <laughs> yeah exactly um, because the what what, what the interesting thing, what Elon, what Elon said on, on the the latest um, international astronomical conference, I, I don't remember yep. the, the, the exact name, yeah. um, is they plan to obsolete all of the Falcon rockets with that thing. That it would be, you know, one uh, new architecture that would also be able to um, to bring satellites um, to orbit. Which sounds insane for such a huge uh, ship to carry some small payload, but if they can actually have full reusability of both the stages, then that might actually turn out to make a lot more sense. Like imagine the difference between you know a a tiny airplane which can only fit you inside and it costs maybe two million to build and use it once. Versus you use um, a Boeing seven four seven, which is a very big airplane, but then the cost of just fueling it up for one uh, f- for one trip is what four hundred thousand dollars, right? So if mm, they can actually yeah. figure out full reusability, which is not viable in uh, for the Falcon family, then that might actually work, and and that rocket is in theory capable enough to perform moon and mars missions so it really depends on on how well it works and there's still a lot to figure out but the the two hardest pieces are the engines and the carbon fiber tanks and it seems that they've made quite a lot of progress on both fronts so at least that's promising
0: yeah there is there there is there has been a lot of progress made and i feel like um uh Call me. Well, I'm not skeptical. I think they will achieve it. It's just a matter of when. And I don't know. I find I find that the thing that's interesting about SpaceX is that the difference between them and NASA is that NASA have been talking about a moon base and new sp- and space transportation system for so long, and space launch system for so long. It feels like it's never going to happen. Yeah. You know. And and there have been quite a few. Programs like uh, I remember some of the uh, the launch return vehicle and uh, the X thirty eight or whatever else, and I um, or the CR, crew return vehicle that they had they were developing to return to Earth like a you know from the space station a while ago, and that got canned. And there's been so many projects uh, that have happened through NASA that have just just did died, and have never gone anywhere. Uh, I feel like SpaceX, although they they dream big. Uh, they're actually executing on a strategy, and it and you can see the clear path from where they are, where they've come from, where they are, and where they're going. And it it, it clearly it clearly has a path, and they are starting to deliver on some of it.
1: Yeah, the 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 idea of um, landing rockets propulsively and relaunching them seemed ridiculous to a lot of people you know, just a few years ago and now it's happening. So we'll see about that. I think the largest problem with Moon and Mars is not getting to it. It's just you need a lot more other stuff than just this powerful rocket. Um, I, I think with the powerful rocket, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they will do it. Not as fast as they think they can. They intend to launch the first mission, I think in 2020 or 2022. That might take a bit longer. But again, with the huge tanks, which actually seem to work, and the engines, they'll probably do it. But for Moon and Mars, you need habitats, you need, um, you need life support, you need all of these other things. And for, Mar- for Mars, you also need, um, uh, you need to make a propellant plan. Those are other insanely difficult projects to accomplish. So that might take a lot longer because of that. And they might be a bit too optimistic about this problem solving itself and other people tackling that problem. Uh, but but the BFR itself, um, I think it should be flying in a few years and become the most powerful rocket ever.
0: Absolutely, and I think that uh, the the thing that I find um, so inspiring is how far they've come. They they the the company started in two thousand and two. It's now two thousand and seventeen you know, so in 15 years, they've gone from having no rockets, um, and they're basically, uh, they've got a, a, a 16 out of 18, um, first stage, uh, la- relanding success ratio. They've relaunched some of those already, um, and they can deliver most, almost, everything except the super heavy lift, basically, which is what the Falcon 9 um, Heavy is supposed to fix, um, and it's just it's incredible that they've come this far so quickly so I'm thoroughly impressed uh, with what they've managed to achieve the scale of the company continues to grow and um, I think that uh, it's it is the game it is the game changer in the space industry and it's it's also pushing comp- more competition which is great um, yeah. so yeah I think it's very very impressive and in terms of one of the things that I um, I sort of bring up with with Elon Musk. One of the reasons that I'm I'm so impressed with the guy is that he uh, he has a, a long term vision and a long term dream, and it's all good stuff. You know, it's all good. It's a good. They're good goals to have, and he wants to change the world in in a good way. And I think that honestly, he actually is making decent strides in that respect. The the thing is, I I think Tesla's having the bigger impact more quickly. Um, yeah. To the world, but there's no question that SpaceX is uh, is going to be the next big thing. After that, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be huge because I mean, if we can actually get the costs down, make it more cost effective, then suddenly we can have all sorts of different satellites. We can actually um, maintain space stations better. We can actually have moon bases, and we could go to other planets. And um, that that can only be a good thing. Um, you know. For us, as a as as a species, I suppose, but um, in the grand scheme of things, uh, I think it's wonderful. So I'm I'm my hats off to Elon Musk on SpaceX. I think he's doing a great job, and uh, I'm very excited about the future for them.
1: Same, and the the future for space travel and rocketry is looking quite bright, and a lot of that is at least partially uh, thanks to SpaceX um, because of competitive pressure. ULA, the US, the only pretty much US competitor uh, for SpaceX. The, the prices for their rockets have gone down dramatically, even though they're still way more expensive. Um, they're probably. It looks like they're going through with their new rocket, which is going to be much cheaper, and is going to have an engine built by Blue Origin, which is another private company owned by Jeff Bezos, funny enough, another yep. person with a very long-term view of the world. Yep, Mr. And, Amazon. Yeah, Mr. Amazon. Which is which is pretty insane for, for this conglomerate of Lockheed Martin and Boeing, those you know, really big uh companies with so much history behind them, to buy engines uh developed by a new player. You know, yeah, run true. by someone selling stuff on the internet. Yeah, but it, know, it's, it's actually weird, happening hey? and yeah, and Blue is also doing really interesting stuff. They're they're you know, they're not as, as far um, in the game as, as SpaceX, and they don't talk much about what they're building, but they've managed uh, propulsive landings for a, a much smaller rocket than Falcon 9, but still something that reaches space, not orbit, but reaches space. That's still super impressive. And the their new rocket is going to be more powerful than Falcon Heavy and is going to uh, run on methane instead of RP-1. Like a lot of really interesting technology and also is supposed to be reusable, the first stage. And there was nothing like that uh, before and SpaceX showed the template that it can be done and now it's being replicated. And we have um, Rocket Labs with their Electron Rocket, uh, which is a small rocket about the size, actually smaller than Falcon Uh, one but uh, but actually also i believe cheaper than than falcon one and with you know technology like carbon fiber tanks which you know again no one has actually flown an orbital rocket with um carbon fiber tanks and now it's being done by this tiny new u.s slash new zealand you know player it's 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 amazing
0: it is. And I, I'm, I'm, it's kind of like a new uh, space race or space age, I guess, if you'd call it. Uh, there's a new level of excitement about space after things had gone very quiet. Uh, money just seemed to be, you know, hard, too hard to come by. They didn't seem to be a particularly good reason to do these things. And if you can reduce the cost and make it more accessible, and SpaceX have shown that it can be done, these other players are coming into the market and shaking it up. And all the government uh, bodies in the past and all of their supplies and everything have had a bit of a wake-up call that, yes, it can be done better, and this is how it can be done better. So, yes, you know, so I catch up or be left behind. And I think that it will not be unreasonable in the next 20 to 30 years to expect that government-driven um, you know, space launches are essentially gone and that all of it is yeah. subcontracted and nothing will be done by the government, perhaps missions will be planned by the government perhaps facilities like the space station will be planned by governments perhaps but I think even that will tend to get subcontracted out and it's the sort of thing that that in and of itself is is, is a revolution so uh, exciting times ahead I think
1: yeah I, I agree that that's also to me a fascinating uh, part of SpaceX um, the the thing that that people most people know is the landing rockets part uh, but actually, even without that, they still they have the cheapest rocket on the market for, for their class by a pretty large margin. And the reason why that's exciting is because of, of the approach they took. Historically, um, in, in, in the US, you could see how the government would contract, you know, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, et, you know, uh, Norfolk Grumman, etc., et to build their rockets. And they would pay whatever they would charge them plus premium so that they can make money. And because of that, because of government bureaucracy, you had this very inefficient process. And with SpaceX, we see a lot of thinking that's quite natural, uh, again, for me in the software development industry. They, they are, they, their process is so iterative. They started with a small rocket, developed an engine for that. And then they took, built a rocket that's so much larger and just stuffed nine engines in it. And they needed, uh, why would it need a different engine for the second stage? They just used the same engine, just with a larger bell. That's, that's actually not, that's not usual, right? The second stage is just a shorter version of the first stage. Again, it seems natural now, but that's not how things used to be done. They do uh, so much testing. Like uh, when you when you have a Falcon 9 launch, the the you know just for this launch, the center engine of the first stage will be lit up to seven times because every engine after it's built is tested individually, and then they assemble the first stage and they test the first stage on a rocket stand in uh, Texas. Then they assemble the whole rocket together. Then they test it again for a few seconds before launch on the launch pad, and then they launch it. And then they will have up to three burns for the landing, right? I mean, just just this without even relaunching the rocket. The fact that an engine would be lit seven times, that they'll be able to handle that, is unusual, right? Or when you have stage separation and payload fairing separation, traditionally you'd use pyrotechnic bolts, which. You know work most of the time but you can't test them and so SpaceX doesn't do that they, they use pneumatic systems just all of the small things like that are, are pretty fascinating just a very different um, approach and like when you when you see the difference between Space Shuttle and the Falcon 9 Space Shuttle the, the whole idea was to be as reusable as possible. Uh, but guess what? When you count up all of the, the price for the whole program it comes down to about 1 billion dollars per launch that's insane right yeah and they they built so much advanced cutting-edge technology for the space shuttle and that was part of the problem it was way ahead of its time and Falcon 9 the interesting thing is that a lot of things on it are are pretty boring they're using rp1 and liquid oxygen not hydrogen not methane uh, you know higher energy propellants but also more complicated right yeah. they they're using a very simple uh, what's called a a, um, a, a gas um, a gas cycle uh, for for the engines which wastes like a few percent of the propellants to spin up the turbines to pump the propellant um, and again that's inefficient why would they do that Because it's simple, because this way they could iterate. They started with a very simple engine and the first version of it uh, was like 300 kilonewtons of thrust and the current version is more than 900. So they went more than, like about three times the thrust for essentially the same architecture of the engine, right? And that's in a lot of things that SpaceX does, that they, they start with a very simple architecture and then they optimize it over time. And this sort of thinking is just very new in 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 rocketry and in, in anything space-related. But that's kind of what's necessary to be able to get to this point where it's cheap to manufacture, it's cheap to launch, and because of all of the testing, and because they have so many engines, and because of reuse, over time you get more reliability actually and, and not less even though it, it's it's the cheapest system on the market. So, good times ahead. Sorry for the rambling.
0: No, no, no. No, don't apologize. No, ex- absolutely right and on the engine side of things is where I, I don't have... Um uh, as much um, knowledge and the other thing is that's interesting as well is uh, is some of the avion i haven't really spoken about this the um, the the flight control computers and the redundancy and all that sort of stuff and I could mm. probably spend a whole episode on that architecture as well and and how that's been evolving and so on and uh, it, it really is quite fascinating. And the whole concept of reuse is uh, is the way that Elon was sort of you know he knows that's the only way to get the costs down to make it manageable to make it cost effective in the future and and all the design decisions that they're making are in aid of that final goal uh, which is which is awesome and it's just a different mindset and the iterative approach that they're using is just a different uh, it's it's a it's a more I think it's it's not fair to say that that NASA didn't do that because they did. Uh, if you look at the Gemini and the near Apollo missions, and it was iterative in its own way. True, sure. but it but it wasn't iterative uh, at the sort of speed that SpaceX is. But then again, um, it's the, the technology has changed, and uh, I, I just love the fact that SpaceX have uh, SpaceX have have illustrated with pra- practically illustrated that what they what they can iterate on. Uh, in the space of time that they have uh, is um, is truly impressive, and that it is possible and it can be done safely, uh, which you know, even though had, they've had a couple of failures, to be honest, um, it's been it's been pretty good. So, my hat is off to Elon Musk and the guy uh, and the team at SpaceX. They're doing a great job, and I'm very excited about the future. So, uh, if you would like to talk more about this you can reach me on mastodon at chigi at engineered.space or you can follow engineered underscore net on twitter to see any uh, show related announcements uh if you're enjoying pragmatic and you want to support the show you can like some of our backers ivan and chris stone they and many others are patrons of the show via patreon and you can find it at patreon.com com slash john Chigi, all one word uh, patron rewards include named thank yous on the website a named thank you at the end of episodes access to pages of raw show notes as well as ad-free high quality releases of every episode there's also a back catalog of ad-free episodes available and a new making an episode tier if you're interested in that sort of uh, thing so if you'd like to contribute something or anything at all it's there's lots of great rewards and beyond that it's all very much appreciated Pragmatic is part of the Engineer Network and you can find it at engineer.network along with other great shows like Causality, which is a solo podcast that I do that looks at uh, the cause and effect of major events and disasters in history, including the Titanic, uh, Challenger and Fukushima, plus lots uh, and lots more. So, if you're a fan of Pragmatic and you may like it too, so um, be sure to give it a listen. Now, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, Radek, what's the best way to get in touch uh, for people to get in touch with you, mate?
1: Well, the best way would be on Twitter. Uh, I'm right now on a Twitter detox, so I don't look at it as much. But you'll find me at radxp, r-a-d-e-x-p on Twitter, and you can find my blog at Radex.io and there's my email address there. So if you can, shoot, if you want to shoot me an email, you can do that.
0: And uh, also, don't forget that uh, Radix also makes a wonderful podcast called The Podcast. Um, and uh, what's the what's the the best way it, uh, that just find the podcast? You'll see it. A little lightning bolt thing
1: yeah at at, at this point i think it, it's going to be at the top of of the search results if not the podcast at the there
0: you go fantastic excellent um so um once again a special thank you to our patrons a big thank you to everyone for listening and uh thank you radek for uh, taking the time and uh, sharing your knowledge about uh rockets and spacex thank you so much
1: no, thanks for